on. Hey everybody, this is Luke from Cinepub. Just starting you off a little PSA to make sure that you have everything you need before you start listening. Hopefully you have your headphones in and are ready to go. Great. You've got your beer, cocktail, water, whatever your drink of choice is. Perfect. That's it, guys. This listening business is way easy. Unless you're at work, in which case, put the beer away. Come on, at least wait till the boss goes back to his office and Karen isn't looking over the cubicle making sure you're not watching TikToks or playing Among Us or whatever game the kids are playing on their phones these days. Make sure your TPS reports are done, and then let's get back to it. Cheers. What's up everyone? The pub is open. Welcome to another episode of Cinepub, a podcast about movies and booze. As always, I am your host Luke and tonight I'm going to settle in and catch up on what I've been watching, transition to the beer or cocktail I've decided to pair with the featured topic, and then end with a discussion of the featured movie. And tonight, that featured movie is The Wolf of Snow Hollow which, as we'll get into, is a hybrid horror, drama, comedy from the mind of Jim Cummings. But first, let's catch up with what I've been watching. And if you listened to the previous episode, I teased every one of these as well as the featured movie. Uh, But let's start with The Craft Legacy. Having been a pretty big fan of 1996's The Craft growing up, I was extremely skeptical of both a reboot or even a direct sequel, given the fact that the original isn't exactly a staple, often looked as as the crown jewel of horror in the 90s, but also because it's not as though it blew the doors off the theaters and was a massive success financially for the studio at the time. Still, I definitely saw the appeal to update a story like that for today's modern audience, and the more I thought about it, the more I did start to see how structurally the craft would have been a good fit. And in a lot of ways, the craft legacy is precisely how I envisioned a reboot or quote-unquote requel, if you will, would look like. Not that I predicted this beat by beat, but in that you can see the wavelengths uh, and inspirations of the original resonating throughout without it being a carbon copy. It updates the plight of the witchy teens to a more modern audience while also incorporating a more youthful voice throughout the dialogue and employing an overall vibe that, in my opinion, fits the youth of today perfectly. But this is a 30-something-year-old dude projecting my perspective on a property that's far more in line with a demographic that is decidedly not me. Even still, I had quite a bit of fun with this. I thought the actresses were great 
its use of magic and witchcraft is fun without being overly creepy or mean-spirited, and that it has a fantastical element to it that I found really refreshing. My biggest complaints are that in the final act, where the movie kind of goes for broke, uh, it feels a little rushed, and its ideas and aspirations end up being or feeling a bit short shortchanged. So that's The Craft Legacy, which is available right now to buy or rent via theater on demand on several on-demand platforms. Next up is Possessor. I went back and forth with what I wanted to do for the main feature multiple times for this episode. And as I was going through making notes, Possessor was always what I was leaning toward. As I'll get into later in this one, mostly flimsy reasons why I decided to go with The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Possessor most certainly makes a case for why it should have been the featured topic, but then again, if I had the time, I would do extended shows on every single thing I see because I love talking about movies. Anyway, Possessor comes to us from Brandon Cronenberg, the son of the great David Cronenberg, who follows in his father's gory footsteps with his latest Brandon, though, has a style his own here in a cold world in an undefined or near-distant future where a skilled contract killer, Tasia Voss, played by Andrea Riseborough, works for a company who utilizes brain implant technology to transfer Tasia's consciousness into a host body in order to carry out brutal assassinations right before Tasia forces the host to kill themselves just as her consciousness leaves their body. This is the type of base premise that gets me giddy because it checks so many of the things that are cinematic candy to me that I almost get diabetes just thinking about it. Tasia eventually takes on a new target and the film follows the process of how she gets into character and carries out the dirty deeds. Only things get a bit more complicated as the inner workings of her host's brain prove to be a challenge for Tasia to stay in control, and their battling personas threaten to tear both of them apart. If the first part of that premise is candy, the last half is the quote-unquote happy ending for me. The constant mental battle of self against a sci-fi premise involving a brutal contract killer with high-minded means of doing her work, and it's ultra-violent, that's it. That's all just an orgasmic mix in my eyes. Now, the first time I watched this, I wasn't sure if my brain had been fully calibrated to absorb what it was doing. Subsequent rewatches have cemented how much my shit this movie is. It's by no means a feel-good action thriller with stand-up and cheer moments of bravado. It is a deep, dark spiral down the mind of someone losing grasp of reality and the ultra-realistic and brutal violence that it leaves in its wake is unforgettable. You may find yourself flinching every time you see fire pokers for the rest of your life after you see this. It's a bit understated visually, but in terms of low-budget, high-concept sci-fi, this is a can't-miss. Possessor is available right now to rent or buy digitally, and I believe will be available on DVD and Blu-ray come December 4th. It's also worth noting that I purchased the uncut version, and I haven't looked into it enough to say what the difference in cuts compared to the to the uncut version to the cut version is. And now we're going to move on to Synchronic. This one comes to us from the filmmaking duo Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. 
both are credited as co-directors, but Benson has the lone writing credit for this one. And it follows a pair of paramedics going about their lives and doing their jobs as they find themselves on the scenes of several drug-related incidents where a new designer drug known as Synchronic is overtaking the city of New Orleans and is supposedly armed with time travel capabilities. When one of the duo's daughters goes missing as a result of using the drug, the other takes it into their hands to subject himself to the potentially dangerous side effects to hopefully find a clue to her disappearance. The stars Jamie Dornan and Anthony Mackie, who do a great job of selling a comfortable and rooted friendship as each are fighting their own personal demons. The actors' dynamics bring a lot to the characters and ultimately the audience's ability to immerse in this world where an altered drug can actually teleport people to new time, different time periods based on where in the world they're standing when the drug kicks in. Similar to Possessor, the premise here could not be more up my alley if they tried or merged both Possessor and Synchronic together, but even then it could be argued there is too much of a good thing. I love Benson and Moorhead style and they're this is another winner for me, though it doesn't quite reach the same level of, of enjoyment I had with their previous effort, The Endless. Synchronic uh, was released theatrically and uh, at drive-ins. I have not seen a date for VOD, but hopefully we will see that come up here pretty soon. Last but not definitely not least is Spontaneous. Of all the fresh and exciting things I think can still be done with the teen coming-of-age romantic comedy, I think the premise of this one is one of the last things I would have expected. Director Brian Duffield, who has adapted the screenplay from the novel of the same name by Aaron Starmer, spontaneous follows an unexplained phenomena befalling the seniors of a small town high school as they begin to spontaneously explode into piles of, go piles of gore. Mara, played by Catherine Langford, is witness to one of the first incidents, and shortly after, she receives a letter from a fellow student, Dylan, played by Charlie Plummer, telling her that he has a crush on her. Dylan tells her that the tragic incident meant, meant that he needed to do the things he wanted to do because you never know how much time you have left, and he didn't want to have any regrets, and so the two begin what's more or less a storybook love story, but with a lot more quirk and exploding teenagers. Catherine Langford gives a really, really great and confident performance here, and Duffield's vision for this is eerily timely with today's COVID-19 landscape. The movie, for as fun, funny as it is, has a lot of really hard-hitting emotional beats revolving around not just the relatable uncertainty of your senior year in high school, not knowing what's coming next, especially when you could explode at any moment, but also just in terms of the grief and coping with living on after someone you know or a loved one has passed away. Plus, there's the message that we all can use about doing the things you want, want to do because tomorrow is not a promise so that when your time comes, you have no regrets. Spontaneous is a lot silly, but also quite powerful at times and is available right now to rent or buy on demand. So that's what I've been watching as we move on to what I'm drinking before we move on to the featured review. 
And in the spirit of me flip-flopping my choice for the main review and ending up replacing Possessor, I just so happen to have a crawler of something that's perfectly fit for the last-minute switch that I did, and it comes from Monolithic Brewing Company out of Omaha, Nebraska, which made its debut on the podcast during the Clerks episode where my guests and I had their Adam West Coast IPA. And this time, we're headed back into the New England IPA territory with their newest beer, Something Else. Part of me wishes I could travel back in time and have this with the After Midnight episode, since that movie was originally literally called Something Else back when I saw it as part of TIFF in 2019. Monolithic describes something else as a tropical-tasting, double-dry-hopped IPA with citrus notes and a juicy finish. And I believe that this is a take on one of the beers that they had during their opening initial, their initial opening called The Start of Something Beautiful, which featured mosaic, citra, and sabro hops. Right off the bat, I actually can't tell if what I'm getting is Citra and Mosaic, which is odd because those are two of my absolute favorite hops, and I can usually taste or place them the second that I taste a beer that uh, that has them in it. Monolithic's description definitely is not off. It is tropical forward, does have a lot of citrus, and the finish, while not not really juicy is I would just call it somewhat juicy because there is a little bit of bitterness on the back end. What's throwing me off a bit is that this definitely tastes like a beer from a young brewery still trying to refine their recipes a bit and make them a little cleaner uh, and with a more professional flavor profile. This is billed as a New England. It also, it definitely does not look the part of a New England as it looks more like a West Coast IPA. It's got just a, a tinge of haze to it. The aromatics are really nice, but there is a little unrefined aspect to this and could use a little bit more tightening as they move forward. Uh, this is by no means a bad beer, and I'm actually pretty impressed with the quality overall given that this is a new brewery just getting their legs under them and they're still dialing in their recipes to accommodate scale. But to the point of style, as I mentioned, I don't think this really falls under what you would expect from a New England IPA. Uh, it actually ticks more of the West Coast IPA, more of the West Coast IPA boxes than anything else. The only thing outside of the West Coast IPA style and fits more of a New England style is the level of bitterness, as this does have a bit of bite, but definitely finishes off on the juicier side, which is definitely more in the wheelhouse of a New England. It's a really good beer. It's growing on me the more that I drink it. So I do have a whole 32-ounce crawler of this that I'm going to be chipping away at, and it uh, I didn't mention this before, but it clocks in at 7% ABV. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and take a little break, and when I come back, I will start digging into... The Wolf of Snow Hollow.
I'm John, I'm an alcoholic. I've been in the program now for six years. Sober for three. This is scary. It's new. I never saw a body like that. There's gonna be a lot of late nights and overtime because of the brutal murder that happened in town. And I didn't want to set up expectations that I can't keep. Our expectations of you are very low. Spans of the bites are gigantic. Same as the distance of the paw prints. It's a wolf. Or maybe it's a werewolf. No, let me just make this perfectly clear. There is no such thing as werewolves. Our killer is a guy, and I'm gonna find him, and I'm gonna kill... And we're gonna bring him to justice. We have every reason to believe that this monster will show up again tonight. I won't ask you to pray with me because of the goddamn lawyers. Where were you? Where were you? John, not only talk to me once, okay? They're saying it's a wolf. No, it's a man. When do I get to be right about something? And I'm back, jumping right into the Wolf of Snow Hollow. I have been largely unfamiliar with the works of Jim Cummings thus far. But this is a movie that kind of came out of nowhere for me to actually be a breath of fresh air to what has felt like a bit of a stale, false slate of movies. Not that that's all that shocking, given the fact that the existence of tentpole releases is stagnant due to COVID. This was released via theater at home initially on October 9th, and I remember seeing the poster as I scrolled through several of the services I peruse daily, and eventually... Curiosity just got to me, along with the fact that it seemed to be getting quite a bit of praise critically. That kind of drew me into it, though I'd never really seen a lot of people I know or follow via social media really chirping about it. This is Cummings' second directorial feature, and though I haven't seen Thunder Road, it now intrigues me to get more of a sense of the style the actor, director, writer, producer likes to employ. The Wolf of Snow Hollow blends multiple genres into one, walking it walks a delicate balance between them all. This is largely a dark comedy that mixes in drama, mystery, thriller, and horror elements, making it kind of a unique hybrid that ultimately I'm fine with settling and calling it a horror comedy. However, it's not slapstick or traditional comedy so much as it's an exasperated style of comedy with a mean edge to it meaning that Cummings' writing style and his performance in particular oozes angst, but with a surreal and idiosyncratic humor. The movie quite simply is a about a recovering alcoholic cop of a small town in Utah who finds himself battling his inner demons all at once, which becomes increasingly difficult as dead bodies begin to pile up after every full moon. Rumors swirl around the town that a there's a werewolf who's taken residence and the pressure mounts for John, Jim Cummings' character, to solve the case b- before the livelihood of the town takes a hit with ski season just around the corner. 
There are definitely shades of Jaws in that last little bit of premise, uh, but with a, a snowy tilt. And in a lot of ways, uh, Jim Cummings seems to have a lot of that inspiration throughout, being that the film follows a cop at his wit's end trying to rid his beloved community of a murderous creature. The two films, of course, are completely different, and The Wolf of Snow Hollow thrives on performances and how everyone is able to step to the beat of Jim Cummings' off-kilter drummer. John, as a character, is deeply flawed. It's an interesting choice for sure to make his character so inherently unlikable, but it speaks to the type of humanity that Cummings wants to try to explore and wants his audience to learn to empathize with. Whether or not everyone will is up in the air, but John is verbally abusive to literally everyone around him. He's got a caustic mean streak that he outwardly projects, making whatever soft center he might have nearly impossible to penetrate by even those closest to him. He's been through a bitter divorce. His teenage daughter on some level wants to connect, but is repelled by his behavior, which of course comes to a head at some point in the film which subsequently becomes a point where John himself has that moment of self-reflection where he begins to see the harm that his toxic personality has had on those around him. Ultimately, I don't think the film wants us to come around to the fact that he's a changed man by the end or even ever becomes a good person, but that he we at least try to find a way to empathize with the type of man that John is, who deep down may not be as prickly and hard to crack as it seems, but is at least putting in some kind of effort while battling numerous inner demons and perhaps even an underlying personality disorder that drives his frustrated outbursts. But this is one rando internet guy's opinion, and by no means is it one that you have to share. So just keep that in mind before you start firing up the keyboard to, I'm sure, politely let me know how wrong I am. This far in, and we've yet to really hit on the fact that the movie toys around with the idea of that we are in a horror scenario with a potential werewolf having taken residence in Wolf Hollow. Cummings actually manages to pace and frame his sophomore feature effectively as an old school mystery horror. Plus, I am personally a sucker for winter set horror and many, many scenes, including some of the attack sequences, take place with huge flurries of falling snow, which for whatever reason makes me giddy, even though in real life I absolutely loathe snow, which also that's not entirely true. I just hate cold and I hate snow that accumulates. I don't want to get too far into how all of this plays out, but suffice to say that the movie doesn't exactly make it a secret that something incredibly weird and potentially supernatural is going down. The kills all have signs of a very large animal having done the deed, and at one point we actually see a very large wolf standing on its hind legs, and as it's attacking its latest victim, still... Since our main character is steady in his belief that a werewolf simply cannot exist, we as the audience have to stay in for the ride and decipher the clues to the, the point we either have to insist our main character isn't just a flawed asshole, but also in, he's in denial, or that he's onto something and maybe there's something even weirder afoot. The movie does such a great job at making all of its weird sensibilities palatable that 
the ideas it presents of that there's not actually a werewolf and that something else could be going on seems perfectly reasonable and the finale wraps the mystery up in a wholly satisfying way. Let's also not forget that I believe that this is the last cinematic performance we got from the late great Robert Forster, who is rock solid in this. He's really funny. He's really easy to to empathize with as John's sheriff father. And like I said, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, it, it came out of nowhere for me to likely be a contender not just as one of my favorite horror movies of the year, but also likely one of my favorite overall movies of the year. Even with as flawed as our quote-unquote hero is, the movie never loses its off-brand sense of humor because it also becomes a little self-deprecating at times in our in our own view of John as a character, and it's that sense of humor that blends oddly well into the old-school horror scenario on display. Beyond all that, the sense of mystery that runs throughout keeps the audience on its toes and ultimately feels like the type of hybrid mashup horror, thriller, and mystery that we don't really see a lot of today. This one comes highly recommended for me and is available right now to rent or buy on demand. And I actually think that that's going to do it for my review of The Wolf of Snow Hollow and bring us to the end of this episode of Cinepub. I mentioned on the last show that I'm gonna keep an eye out for something fun to feature on the for an episode or two here in the next couple weeks, but we will likely be getting into my best of lists before the end of December. If you have any feedback for me or the show in general, please feel free to email me with the address cinepubpod at gmail.com and follow the show on Twitter or Instagram to get teases of what I might be covering next, though I have been slacking on that as of late. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in and hope that you'll join me for another round soon. Have a great night. Cheers. Cheers.